Miami County Commissioners said yes, but the New England Revolution said no. Hello everybody, welcome back. You are listening to Miami Total Football Radio, aka Miami Total Football Radio, a podcast on Inter-Miami providing you all the latest news, analysis, opinions, inside information, general punditry, and much more. Oh, and as you probably have heard, because we say it almost weekly, a podcast that has been listened to in more than 50 countries. My name is Franco Panizo. I am one of your usual three co-hosts. The other two are not here today, sadly, but no worries at all, because we have someone more than capable and more than worthy filling in. Her name, of course, is Michelle Kaufman of the Miami Herald, a longtime soccer and sports reporter, and someone who, over these last few years, has become a dear friend. Michelle, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Awesome. Glad to hear it. So, Michelle, it's been a while since we've had you on. I had been telling you in person we need to have you back on soon, and now is the perfect time because you are one of only a few reporters, or maybe three, four reporters, I don't know how many were there. It seemed like a handful at most, that attended the very long, very drawn-out, but ultimately successful public vote for this stadium project, the Miami Freedom Park project, which is a go, which is a go. Two thumbs up uh, after a four to one vote last week. So we will touch on that. We'll quickly touch as well on, on this past weekend's game. Uh, later on in the show, I, I will have another guest, Eric Krakauer, on to help preview this weekend's game for Inter Miami against Charlotte FC. And at the end of the podcast, of course, we will do the Q&A session answering all of the questions that you listeners have. So Michelle, I know you're pressed on time, so let's not waste any more time. And let's get to it. Okay, Michelle. So last Thursday, down in Miami, a very public vote. Yes, a very long day. A very long day. day. I I wasn't able to make it. I had other work working matters to tend to, but you were. You were one of again a few reporters that were on hand and that stuck around for the six plus hours of conversation yep. it was nine hours i was there nine hours Oof. got there at 1 30 and uh left at 10 30 at night so <clears throat> it was a long day it was very interesting um i told my husband that uh and my mom you know there's a there's a playhouse in in coconut grove called the coconut grove playhouse you know where they yeah. it's now closed up but they used to have you know theater there and plays and and stuff uh, basically miami city hall I really have sort of renamed it the uh, Coconut Grove Playhouse because <laughs> there is so much theater that goes on in those meetings. I mean, the people who were there who have never been to one were pretty amazed at at, at the uh, the demeanor and what goes on there and all of the theatrics and histrionics and, you know, a lot of big, loud debates. Um, it's actually kind of interesting in a, in a sick kind of way. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was Miami politics – you know, Miami politics front and center. Um, you had five commissioners. One had already stated that he's going to go to the grave saying no. Manolo Reyes is a no, you know, to the grave. So he was like, don't even try to convince me. Right. I'm a no. So that meant they had to have four out of the other four. They had to have all four. Um, and, uh, you know, it was pretty well known that, that Joe Carroyo and Joe Carroyo and, um, uh, and D- Diaz de la Portilla, Alex Diaz de la Portilla were on board. Christine King, uh, who's the chairwoman, who was very impressive, by the way, she was also on board. I'm going to talk about her in a minute. Um, 
and then, you know, the swing vote was Ken Russell. Ken Russell, um, you know, has a, he represents different, you know, different kind of constituents. He's, uh, he's big on green space. He's big on, you know, global warming and those kind of things. And so he was very, very concerned about the loss of the green space um, where the golf course is. So he was, uh, he was the swing vote. He's really the guy that had to be convinced in the end. And, um, you know, I was surprised actually that of the public people who spoke there, you know, they allow the public to walk up to the microphone right. and they each get a few minutes to say something. The majority were in favor. The majority of the people who attended the meeting were in favor. There were opponents there, but not as many as the people who were in favor. And, uh, you know, and then when they started discussing, it looked like Ken Russell was maybe going to vote no. And in fact, they did a preliminary vote and he said no, because he got very mad. Yeah, it got, it got spicy. It got in there. spicy in <laughs> there. He and Diaz de la Portilla were getting into it. Um, by the way, you know, for background, Ken Russell endorsed Diaz de la Portilla's opponent in the last election. So I think, you know, that is definitely still hanging over their relationship. Uh, but anyway, that got a little bit contentious there. And that is when Christine King, the grown-up in the room, and I will point out the only female, uh, I, it was almost like watching a mom with four sons or four boys who were bickering. And she basically said at that point, when it was starting to really get out of hand there, she said, I think it's time for a recess. I think this is a perfect time or a good time for a recess. We're going to take 30 minutes, you know, and basically everybody composed themselves over the next 30 minutes and let's re reconvene in 30 minutes. So that's exactly what happened. They they left for 30 minutes. I went to the vending machine to buy some snacks because I was starving. <laughs> um, what snacks? What snacks did Michelle Kaufman grab? What did I grab? Well, I I, <laughs> um, I got peanut M&Ms. Okay. I, I wanted to get something that wasn't too loud, like potato chips sure. are crunchy. And, you know, you're in a meeting and also the bag can be loud. You know right, what I mean? Right. So I got the peanut M&Ms and, uh, and a bottle of water. So anyway, then we reconvened and, um, and everybody was, you know, composed. Ken Russell apologized for his outburst. Everybody was, you know, back on, you know, acting like grownups again. And uh, little by little, one by one, every commissioner got the assurances that they needed. And, you know, this is this is politics and and this is definitely politics in miami but it, it's politics everywhere here it's just more public most places it's more behind the scenes but basically you know there were four commissioners they're saying i will vote yes for this if fill in the blank you know mm -hmm. if my constituents if this is going to be a good deal for the people i represent then i will vote for it and so what can you do for me basically is what they were all saying to Jorge Mas, you know, right. and, and Jose Mas, what can you do for me and for my constituents? That's how politics works. And in Miami, it's very public. Um, there have been negotiations, obviously, for the last two years. Uh, the Mas group has been talking to all of these commissioners. This is not the first time last Thursday that all of these issues came up. These issues have been being negotiated and talked about ad nauseum for two years but this was the first time that it was in public. So each commissioner had to show in public to their constituents what it is that they're fighting for 
and what assurances they needed to make sure that they felt that it was a good deal for the city and for their voters. So um, one by one, they, they got what they wanted and they felt comfortable with it. And then when they redid the vote, it was four to one. And, uh, you know, the Musk brothers and all of the staff that were there from the team went crazy. There were some fans there. Uh, you know, it was a celebratory moment for the club that has been, you know, obviously since David Beckham got here in 2014, which was eight years ago now, he's been trying to get a stadium going for eight years. And uh, it's been a really long saga. It's been ugly at times. It's been very contentious. Um, you know, there were some very loud opponents uh, who were very opposed to it. But in the end, the voters voted 60% plus to, you know, that they wanted the project. And then the commissioners voted four to one in the end that they were in favor of it with all of these conditions and assurances that the Moss brothers have given them. So, um, you know, a lot of things changed. The, the rent you know, the rent rates went up. He, they promised right. more, you know, more parks around the city. Uh, they promised minority, minority involvement and minority, um, you know, employment as far as the construction work and as far as concessions and other businesses that are going to be there once it opens in three years or whenever it opens. Um, you know, so there were a lot of different things that, um, that the commissioners wanted assurances of and, and they got them, and then one of them actually that was a bit of a twist was uh, Joe Carroyo saying that he wanted them to check with UM into the possibility of maybe doing uh, having it be a joint home for the Miami Hurricanes football team, which would uh, require it to be bigger than you know twenty seven thousand. It would right. have to be closer to forty five, even fifty. So anyway, those were all kind of all the big talking points. It was. Um, you know, it was Miami politics right there in front of you on stage. It, it looked like a like a TV show, but it wasn't. It was actually a, this this political talk happening before our very eyes. And uh, I actually felt before we switch gears to what this all means going forward for the team and what the next steps are. I felt for Victor Ulloa and Damian Lowe, who were in attendance, <laughs> and they they were probably approached by someone you know in in the staff, and they were like, "Hey, you guys want to make a public appearance? This will count for your you know x amount of public appearances that you have to make for the season." And they're like, "All right, sure," and then they got dragged into this very long, very yeah, drawn we ran a out. picture. Yeah, we ran a picture of them with my story that was so funny in a way because, in fact, my lead I led with them. I said, "Victor Ulloa." And Damian Lowe got a, you know, very lengthy civics lesson <laughs> on Thursday afternoon because they had no idea what they were getting into. I think they probably thought they're going to go there and shake some hands and smile and take some pictures, which is what they usually do when they go to things. But they sat there mm. and they were in the second row. They were right behind the Moss brothers and, and uh, they had to sit there. You could see in the expression in their faces was like, oh, my God, you know, basically. <laughs> What have we gotten ourselves into? What is going on here? I mean, they really, yeah. Uh, they didn't, they didn't, uh, they wouldn't be interviewed afterwards, but, you know, I just chatted with them for a second and they said, wow. I mean, they, they had no idea that that's what politics looks and sounds sure, like. So sure. they both said that they learned a lot. They both said that they, uh, that they learned a lot by being there, you know, just to see the political process, you know, unfold in front of you and especially in such a public emotional dramatic way the way it does at miami city hall 
Um, it's, it's, you know, it's different, I think, from most other city halls probably around the country. Yeah. I don't think it's like that, like, in Toledo, Ohio, I don't imagine that it's that it's that dramatic. <laughs> you know, we got to add a little sprinkle here in South Florida of, of telenovela into some things. You know, it makes it, exactly. a, little, makes it a little more interesting. Everything here is a telenovela. Everything is, yes. Well, again, before we switch gears to what this means, let's talk about Jorge and Jose Mas. Because, look, a lot of people say and have said a lot of different things about Jorge, especially because he's the more forward-facing of the owners. Uh, the, the one that makes himself available to media and, and makes more appearances publicly. And a lot's been said about Inter-Miami and the issues that they've had on and off the field, the fact that they broke roster rules. But as critical as we've been at times of Jorge Mas on this podcast, I also have to give credit when it's due. And I saw a Jorge Mas that, I mean, you can tell me better because you were in the room, but looked like he commanded the room when he went up there to speak. And I, and you told me that you know he, he didn't have a paper in front of him. There was no talking points while he was making his speech. So very impressive from Jorge Mas, very commanding in his in his delivery of what it would mean for South Florida. I came away very impressed with Jorge Mas. Um, I know Jose spoke at one point as well, which I'm not used to. I don't think I, maybe your memory um, is better than mine, but I don't remember Jose speaking uh, publicly or, or at least when it comes to Inter Miami. I don't. I didn't even know if I knew what his voice sounded like. So that, when I heard Jose speak, I was like, okay, maybe maybe they're starting to doubt whether this is going to get across the finish line. But nonetheless. Jorge Mas, I thought, was the was the star of the show f- just because of what he what he presented, um, how he presented it. And then at the end, you could see in his face from the images, from the video, I'm sure you could ex- like live it in person, but just how happy it, and how much it meant to him to finally get this vote that has been drawn out for so, so many years. So from your yeah. perspective, what did you see from the Masas, but more specifically Jorge on that day. Yeah, I mean, he's always been a very good public speaker. I mean, that's why he's always the one who's front and center. You know, Jose is more behind the scenes in the business side. And Jorge's the, you know, he's the salesman. He's the spokesperson. He's he's a very, very good public speaker, very commanding. And uh, yes, I mean, he gave a very impassioned speech and presentation that was full of information, full of information and numbers and all kinds of arguments that he made. And he did not, you know, he wasn't reading from a teleprompter. He he really did not have notes there. He was, uh, you know, he I don't know if he even had a little card with a couple notes on it. I don't think he had anything. Um, he spoke for quite a long time. He was very commanding, definitely commanded the room. And, you know, basically was he was there to shoot down some of the criticisms and, you know, talked about that, look, he played baseball on that in that space that's the golf course now in Grapeland. When he was little, he played Little League Baseball there, but now it's a, you know, it's a contaminated golf course that's losing money, and here's what this project could do for the city, and here's how much money the city could make, and it would be a park, 58 acres of it that's open to, well, the whole thing is open to the public, but a 58-acre part of it will be open to the public where you could go and, you know, your kids could you know, throw a football or throw a Frisbee or kick a soccer ball, you know, whereas now they can't. So anyway, he, you know, he presented all of his points. um, And uh, yeah, he's, he's a very good public speaker. He's a very good salesman. And it definitely is very personal and means a lot to him. Um, This is a legacy project for their family. This is a, you know, a long time ago when I spoke to Jorge way back when, 
you know, he's doing this as a tribute to his father, to his parents who came from Cuba with nothing and, you know, built up this business, Mass Tech, and he wants to leave. He wants to leave something in the city of Miami. He keeps calling it a legacy project. It's a Mass family legacy project. He wants to do something that's going to be lasting for the city of Miami in the Mass name from the Mass family to this city that embraced his immigrant, you know, father when he came here, Uh mother. And um, afterward, you know, there was one moment, I don't know if it was caught on camera, uh, because it was when, um, I think when Mayor Suarez was speaking, or Joe Carroyo, I don't remember, but it may have been when Joe Carroyo was speaking. When one of those two was speaking, I believe Joe, um, Jorge was behind, you know, in the back, uh, behind him, and he came as close to crying as I've ever seen really? him, and I've been around him a lot. He, he, his eyes got really teary. He had to sort of compose himself. His mouth was like quivering a little bit. He came very close wow. to, to really letting it all out. I mean, it, it, you just could see at that moment how much passion and energy he's put into this, and it finally went through. And let's face it, there were a lot of moments where it looked like it was not going to go through. There definitely yeah. were, were opponents. There were opponents that day. You know, there was the, the you know, Billy Corbin video the week before. I mean, there was a mm-hmm. lot of stuff opposed to the project. And, and you know, for him to finally get it across the finish line, um, it was an emotional time for that family and particularly for him. You could see it in his face. You could see it in his voice. You could see it when he you know, when he was pumping his fist and saying, yeah. Vamos, Miami, you know, whatever. Um, but that that's that quiet moment where he almost lost it when uh I believe it was Joe Carroya was speaking, um, it, it that really said a lot to me right there. It it meant a lot. It meant a lot to the Moss brothers for sure. And it's not just I mean, I know everybody just wants to say, Oh, they're greedy billionaires and you know Everybody who's rich is greedy, and everybody who's a billionaire is an idiot. Well, you know, that's not always the case. Um, you know, they their family happens to have made a lot of money. His father started a company, you know, to, to put cable underneath all of, you know, Miami-Dade County pretty much and, and made a lot of money, and they have a lot of money. Yes, they do. They, they live large. Yes, they do, but they also give a lot back to the community and um, you know, everything from the, the Cuban freedom museum downtown and stuff, you know, they really do. They do try to give back to the community from what I've seen. And, uh, and this project is in their minds anyway, and uh, a way of, of giving something back to the city that's going to be lasting. Yeah. And I saw in the images, someone that was just genuinely happy, like almost like a little kid, like just that pure bliss um, the twinkle in his eye after that vote went 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 in in Inter Miami's favor. So obviously a huge day for the team. And look, I'll, I'll say this on the podcast because Jorge Mas hasn't been flawless. Inter Miami's ownership hasn't been flawless, but Inter Miami fans should appreciate having Jorge Mas as one of the owners, as the as the forward facing owner. Because I've covered this league for a long time, and I've seen teams that have absentee owners that would never, ever, ever have their owner go into a public political meeting, give a speech, sit there for X amount of hours, and try to push a project like this across the line. New York Red Bulls are one example. I've covered them up close and personal. I've never seen their owner in and around the stadium. 
even just there. So, look, Jorge Mas may have his faults, his flaws, whatever you think. But if you're an Inter Miami fan, I would say appreciate him because he's around, he's very involved, and he clearly, clearly, this clearly all means a lot to, to him. This whole, yeah, this whole very, thing. He, it, he takes everything very personal. And so, I mean, he's extremely present. Again, whether you think they... You know, they made mistakes because I, he's never owned a sports team before. And, you know, running a running a a, a company is very different from running a sports Absolutely. team. And, and he definitely learned that right away. Um, but as far as being present, you know, he was there at FIU for the U.S. Open Cup game. I mean, he was he goes to the games. His family goes to the games, his wife, his kids, his, you know, the kids' boyfriends and girlfriends. They're invested. I, they're invested and not financially, not just financially, not just financially. Right, they're very invested. They don't just write checks. They're there. They're there when the team loses 5-0. They're there with the fans and they hear, hear the boos and they, you know, they're they're part of the they're part of the landscape of the team. They're always around whether you agree with them or disagree with them. They are present and they do care. I will give them that and it's the same with their uh with UM. You know, they are involved, especially Jose uh, is very involved in UM athletics. And, and they care, you know, they care deeply. And whether you agree, disagree, whether you, you know, think they wasted their money on Blaise Matuidi or whether you agree or disagree on where the stadium should be, you know, they are, they're very wealthy owners who are not just writing checks. They're really trying to be involved in the day-to-day. And maybe sometimes that's not a good thing because if you've never been a sports owner and you're so involved in the day-to-day, maybe you make some stumbles and mistakes along the way because you don't really know what you're doing, let's face it. And he would admit that himself. Uh, but, you know, as time goes on, I think, you know, they're obviously learning. You learn from your mistakes. And, uh, you know, and we'll see going forward. I mean, I think you see this year's team has only one DP, and he's not even playing right now. Right. So the team is playing without any DPs after being a team that at the beginning – Jorge was like, we're going to have three DPs. We're going to have three of the top players in the world. We're going to be, everyone on our team is going to have played in Champions Leagues. And every we're going to compete for the title in the first year and blah, blah, blah. You know, obviously that didn't happen. Uh, they learned. And, um, you know, so we'll see going forward. I mean, the one thing is it's an interesting team to cover because you do have, you know, such a passionate owner who who wants to do so much and, you um, you know, maybe wanted to do too much too soon, uh, was naive, you know, in many ways to what it takes and how this league is and, and just sports in general. I mean, it's a very public, you know, Mass Tech is a very successful business, but it's a very private, you know, no one around the, the, the city knows or cares what's right. going on in their boardroom. You know what I mean? That much. But when you're on a sports team, everybody feels like they're a part owner of the team because it's a very, very public business, being in the sports business. And I think that is something that Jorge Mas, you know, even though he likes the public eye and he likes to speak and he's a commanding speaker, he's never had to do his business in public. His business has always been in boardrooms. And now his business is extremely public and in the media. And uh, that's been a big learning curve for him, I think. Yeah, absolutely, Michelle. And and look, I will reiterate, Jorge Mas has not been flawless as an Inter-Miami owner. He has made mistakes. There are questions and concerns about some of the promises he's made. There's supposed to be a park built in front of Drive Pink Stadium. That still has not happened. It's just a lot uh, with a lot of gravel, grass, but no park. 
hopefully those concerns and those questions aren't carried over into Miami Freedom Park down in Miami. But still, I emphasize, or I re-emphasize rather, that I think overall Jorge Mas is a good MLS owner and someone that the fan base should not take for granted. Because I've watched a few of these stadium conversations, and not every MLS owner would show up for that. Throughout my career, I've seen a few different ones. I've seen San Jose Earthquakes' stadium talk. I've seen Orlando City's on a couple of occasions in their public chamber. And not every owner would be out there under that type of scrutiny, putting themselves in that spotlight when there's a possibility that it doesn't go your way. They might assign one of their higher-ranking officials or one of their top executives to do that and take care of that, and they can be very hands-off, just get-it-done type of attitude or type of approach. But Jorge Mas has been in the thick of it. He's been in the trenches, and he's been in the trenches since 2020. And that, again, I reiterate, is something that is commendable from an MLS owner. There are way too many MLS owners that aren't around, that don't care to push the envelope, that don't care to take matters into their own hands the way Jorge Mas does. So that, that is commendable. Again, not flawless, but still, for me, overall, very good MLS owner. Now, Michelle, quickly, what are the next steps for the Miami Freedom Park project? What's next? Because this vote doesn't mean that they can just go put a shovel in the ground tomorrow and start building this thing. There's still some things that need to be accomplished first that need to be crossed off the checklist. So what's next with regards to this project? And what is next? What will eventually happen to Drive Pink Stadium? Yeah, well... I mean, I think what has to happen, obviously, the remediation, which, you know, they have to remediate that entire that entire golf course, you know, has to be remediated um, because it's it's contaminated, contaminated soil right now underneath there. So that needs to happen. And, uh, you know, there's some zoning uh, zoning changes that have to happen to make it, you know, from a golf course to a commercial zone. Um, That's going to be, you know, sometime in the next six months or whatever. I don't anticipate that being an issue. I mean, I think, you know, the, the big, the big hurdle is the one that they just crossed with the commissioners, but I, I don't think that zoning is going to be an issue. Uh, you know, they have to just make sure things like the plans of how high the stadium is going to be to make sure that it, it complies with, you know, cause it's right by the airport. So nothing there can be beyond a certain height. So the air, you know, the, uh, the federal aviation people have to look at it, the Miami airport people have to look at the plans and, you know, they have to make absolutely sure that it's the right height and the right size and that the zoning is good and all that and the remediation. Uh, once that happens, they can definitely put a shovel in the ground. And uh, I know that Joe Carroyo, you know, he really wants them to do the park early and first uh, so that people can start enjoying that aspect of it, even while they're still building the other things that the park is something that is, you know, very important to everybody who was up there. All the commissioners want green space and park and things that the public can use for free. Um, so that part of the project, I think, is probably going to come early. And it's also good from a PR standpoint, you know, to have the park done before the commercial part, because the park part is the part that the public can actually enjoy right away and, and that stuff. Then as far as the stadium, I mean, once the stadium is built, which is 2025 is what they're saying, three years away, um, which means they're still going to be in drive pink for this season, for next season, and for the 24 season. So I live in Coral Gables. I will still be schlepping up there. 
for all the practices and all the games for the next three seasons. Uh, so it's it's pretty far away still. Um, but once it is built, if it is 2025 spring, having a women's professional team join the, they're going to have, obviously they have the MLS next to whatever it's called. I call it, you know, MLS two. I know that's not the official name, but next <laughs> pro MLS two. I wish they were more simple MLS. One thing I will say about them, their language is really, truly unbelievable. Um, I'm going to read you one thing really, really quick. Uh, Steve Goff posted it the other day and I just, I had to laugh and I just have to read it aloud here to the group. Um, because this is MLS in a nutshell. Ready? Okay. This is an announcement of a, of a, of a transaction. Initially, <laughs> initially Real Salt Lake acquired the number two allocation ranking from Austin FC in exchange for a total of $325 dash dash. $200,000 in 2022 plus $125,000 in 2023 in general allocation money GAM. And the number 22 overall allocation ranking, RSL then sent the number two spot plus $125,000 in 2022 GAM to FC Cincinnati in exchange for the number one overall spot in the current order. Should certain incentives be achieved, Throughout the 2022 season, by the player potentially acquired with the number one selection, RSL would send an additional 25000 in conditional GAM to FC Cincinnati. Okay. If what? anybody could translate that into, into English, please do so. My point is, um, why was I making this point about MLS and how convoluted? Because you're talking about MLS, the second division. And... Oh, the second division. Right, right, right. Okay, sorry. That was a total tangent there. I just had to get out my <laughs> that's what podcasts okay. are for, though. That's what podcasts are for. It's just to rant. Okay, so anyway, that's my little mini rant about MLS language. It's way too complicated, and the whole salary structure is way too complicated. But um, anyway, the, the Drive Pink Stadium... That will remain, that's still going to be their training site, their training facility. They're still going to train there and practice their, you know, right. uh, that's still going to be their training facility. Um, just like the Dolphins had their training facility in Davie and the stadium was at Hard Rock, you know, before. Uh, that's still going to be their training facility. That's still going to be where their MLS2 team will be. Their youth academy will still be there. Uh, they're talking about adding a women's team there, which would also play at that stadium. So they're going to use that stadium for all of those other uh, second tier teams. And then also, uh, you know, they rent that out. I mean, they rented it out for the UM spring football game. They rent it out for international friendlies. Uh, they're hoping that that's going to be used during the world cup, uh, you know, as a training site, uh, for, you know, for a number of teams that, that want to train in South Florida, they can use that stadium and that training facility during the world right. cup. Uh, they can use it for, for high school football. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of uses still for the Drive Pink Stadium. It's not going to disappear. That will still be their Broward presence for the club. That's still going to be their training site. That stadium will still be used on a regular basis. Um, but for the 17 home games, you know, they want to have those in Miami at the Miami Freedom Park. Absolutely. Now, Michelle, if I could take 10 more minutes of your time very quickly just to recap this weekend's game, which was a... Uh perfect storm sort of type of game for Inter Miami just because of the amount of different and difficult things that, that happened. And now Inter Miami played the New England Revolution on Saturday. They lost 2-0 to zero with 
well, while finishing the game with nine men. This was the starting lineup. Nick Marsman in goal, your back four. From right to left, DeAndre Yedlin, Damian Lowe, Amey Mabika, Christopher McVeigh, your midfield trio. Gene Mota once again as the six, as the defensive midfielder. And ahead of him were Gregory and Bryce Duke getting his first start for Inter-Miami uh, at, the, at the MLS level. And then your front three, Ariel Lasseter, Leonardo Campana, and Robert Taylor. The goals came in the first minute and the 64th minute. So Inter-Miami was under it very early on in this one. They lose Leonardo Campana to an injury around the 12th minute. Amey Mabika goes out with an injury himself later in the first half. It's only 1-0 going into, into, the, into the break. Inter-Miami comes out of it, improved a little bit from the run of play, but then they get the second yellow to Damian Lowe. That hurts them. New England starts pushing numbers forward to try to capitalize on that man advantage. They get their second goal, and then later on, Jairo Quinteros was given a second yellow as well. I thought that, w- that one was a bit harsh. But anyway, Michelle, very quickly, your analysis of this past weekend's defeat. Um, yeah, that was a disaster. That game was basically, it went from bad to worse. Everything that could have gone wrong pretty much did. Um, you know, seeing Campana go down in the 11th minute, that was just a major balloon popper. You know, that guy had been so red hot going into that game. He was had become the face of the team the you know the the center of the offense obviously with five games and five goals in four games so when he went down that was very deflating for the team and you could just i mean the fans i'm sure were deflated and obviously the teammates um also you know that was a, a tough one and then mabika had also you know been playing very very well and he goes down too so you've got two starters out and uh they they scored i mean in that Look, starting the game by giving up a goal in the 53rd second of the right. game, that right there, you're already on your you're already on your heels before the clock even hits 1 minute. So the team was already on its heel, you know, a a bad you know, sort of an ill-timed pass, very unusual, you know, Nick Marsman is is known for his delivery of passes. He's very usually very good in that aspect of his game. That was a bad pass you know that just didn't reach Malta and and you know New England capitalized right there so they so they're already down in the 53rd second of the game and then 10 minutes later the leading scorer one of the hottest players in the league goes down so that was a tough one to come back from I was amazed that it was only 1-0 at halftime to be yeah. honest um that was to me a victory for them that it was only 1-0 at halftime and uh you know Two zero. Look, it could have been five or six zero. To be honest, Nick made some great saves in the second half. Um, so you know, it's uh, that was just a game that I think they need to flush down the toilet and forget. <laughs> and just forget about it. It's one of those you just got to forget that one. That was it was bad all the way around. Everything went wrong, and then two red cards. My God, to finish the game, you're finishing the game with nine players and without two of your starters. You know, uh, that's that's a really rough. That's a very rough game. So going forward now, I don't know. I mean, Marsman, I think he was a little bit injured in the game. I don't know what's wrong with him. It may be his back or something else. But um, he was wincing during the game, and he was not out at the training yesterday. Campana, I've been told that he should be ready for the weekend, that it was not a serious injury. But he was not at the training yesterday either. And Gonzalo was still not at the training. Robbie Robinson was. So I guess they'll have him back. And then in the back, um, you know, hearing Ryan Saylor may may get his debut this coming week because yeah. they basically don't have anybody else. You know, they, they really need help back there at center back. 
So if Damian Lowe is out, Quinteros is out, and um, and uh, Mabika's out, uh, Ryan Saylor's probably going to get his MLS debut yeah. uh, this weekend against Charlotte. So it should be interesting to see going forward. I, I If Campana comes back, you know, that'll be a big uh, morale boost for them. Um, if he's out, that's going to be difficult. So yeah. we'll see. We'll see what happens. But that was a rough – that game was – that game was just bad. It was a nightmare. It, it was, was a nightmare, nightmare. for Inter Miami. Do, do you quickly, do you chalk up that error, that first minute error from Nick Marsman? Do you just chalk it up to an individual error or do you chalk it up to something else? Because for me, we've heard Phil say as of late during this recent run that the soccer will come. The, they will improve with the ball, which they've been winning games and not been playing the best. They've been defending well for some parts, but not necessarily playing with the ball in a great way. I think that Phil's maybe trying to incorporate some of that into into the team, trying to have them build out a little bit more, have play more football, play more soccer, and that one in the attempt to do so, it just didn't come off, and and that led to the goal. But I don't know if that's just my my viewpoint. I don't know if you yeah, share I that. No, I think that was an individual error. I mean, Nick Marsman knows what he's doing. He's such a veteran player, and he usually is very good with the ball for a keeper. That's what that's one of the main reasons they got him was for his feet. You know, they felt that his feet were better than than. John McCarthy or whatever. They wanted somebody who was known for his delivery with the, with the ball. So I think that was just a mistimed, you know, it was on turf. It was, it was just a different, I don't know. It was like his first pass of the game, I think, or something, you know, probably is, I don't remember, but one of the first passes of the game for him. And, you know, I guess he thought Mota was going to be at that, at that exact space where he put the ball, but Mota wasn't quite there. He like stuck yeah. his leg way out. Mota's also not right footed. And he's also not very tall. His legs are not that long. So he was trying outstretched as much as he could, but he couldn't get to it. And, and you know, New England was just right there, just pounced on it right at that second. And I just think that was one of those things that happens. I mean, you see it happen in games, you know, where it's just a really bad mistake at a really unfortunate moment right at the beginning of the game. And then that that just sets the tone right away. It, it, puts, them on, it puts them on the defensive right away and – and then when Campana went down, I just think that was a disaster. Yeah. You know, and then from there it was just down, 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 down. So, yeah. uh, especially you know, especially because they didn't have any other strikers. They didn't have any other strikers, natural strikers on the bench. Iguain right. was out. Robbie Robinson, who's you could say he's uh, you know he's played some striker in addition yeah, to the has. wing, but so they didn't have anybody. And Phil Neville had to get creative. He put in Robert Taylor there, which I thought was a mistake because Robert Taylor right. is not a striker. And then. You know, Phil Neville, I think, even acknowledges that at halftime because he he replaces Robert Taylor at the striker with, with Ariel Lassiter and puts yep. Taylor back out on on the wing. So it's, it was clearly just a, a a rough night for Inter Miami across the board. Very hard to analyze just from a general standpoint because of yeah, all I would the things say that went It's wrong. not even worth analyzing. I would say that one is <laughs> a turd that you just flushed down the toilet. So <laughs> no, there we, gonna, there we go. There we I'm go. On that note. Well, Michelle, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I know you have a lot of things to do because you're about to head to your daughter's graduation. So Yes, she's um, graduating from Duke University, so I'm very excited. I'm heading up there tomorrow. So Nice. Okay, yep. well, Michelle, thank you so much for the time. Before we let you go, I have to ask you to do a Miami Total Football radio phrase in Espanol. Just say Miami because I ask every guest to do this. Miami Total Football Radio. Okay, Miami Total Football Radio. Hey, okay, that is Michelle Kaufman. Ladies and gentlemen, we will take a quick break. We will come back with Eric Krakauer and preview the next game on, against Charlotte FC on Saturday. We'll do that after this. We, we suffered a lot tonight in terms of a couple of players. 
uh, going off injured, big players for us going off injured, which, which knocked our rhythm. But the players that then stayed on the pitch and competed, I'm, I'm proud of. But we've got to be better in terms of our dis- discipline. And uh, today's today's a day where we've just got to lick uh, lick our wounds, take take the hits a little bit, and and hopefully it's just a little bump in the road and we bounce back next week against Charlotte. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to switch gears and preview Inter-Miami's next game, which will take place on Saturday afternoon against expansion side Charlotte FC. Man, it feels like not long ago Inter-Miami was the expansion side. But anyway, as promised, the very special guest who is joining us to preview this weekend's match is Charlotte FC's first ever play-by-play announcer, a very dear friend of the show and of myself. And yes, for those of you historians and history buffs out there, the first ever Miami Total Football radio co-host, Eric Krakauer, is in the building. Eric, how are you, my brother? <laughs> that was that was a lengthy introduction. Uh, <laughs> uh, good, man. It's good, it's good to be on this pod once again. You and I were... We're hosting this podcast when uh, Inter-Miami was an expansion side, and I cannot believe we are three years uh, removed from that. Yeah, can you believe it's been, well, it's been two years and some change, but can you believe it's been two years and some change since I was going over to your place, and I was walking through the garage, and we were getting ready to set up, and we were doing the first pod together, and I remember we took a picture and everything. Um, Yeah. Then look where we are now a few years later. You are now Charlotte's TV guy alongside Lloyd right. Sam and and I, I'm still here doing the podcast which is doing well. We've missed you. We ha- we do miss you, but we are doing we're doing well over here. People have uh, have really tuned into Miami Total Football Radio. I think they were waiting for you to leave and then that's <laughs> and that's what it became popular. Yeah. Well, listen, man. I mean, you're 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 breaking all the stories and you're developing a great relationship uh which is there for everyone to 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 see. I think it's worth worth mentioning too that since you brought up uh Lloyd Sam, you know, you and I go way back, back to the days when I was covering the Rebels, when he was playing for the Rebels yeah. in 2013. Uh, so it's been a while. And of course, before Lloyd moved to Charlotte, and while I was still completing my move, the three of us hung out we did. in Miami in what was uh, a night filled with PG debauchery. <laughs> PG debauchery. <laughs> By the way, that night, Lloyd Sam, Eric Krakauer, and myself we all went out in Brickle, and for some reason, for some reason, Eric decided to wear the exact same outfit as I did. I don't know why. I don't know how that happened, but he did. If you want to see it's it, just, the picture's on Twitter. <laughs> we are we are two men with exquisite taste and a penchant for blue. <laughs> it, it, we are, though. We are. I mean, well, you definitely are now because now you're officially uh, – on the Charlotte FC payroll. But that's why we think you're a great guest to come on and help us preview this weekend's game. Uh, how's the family, first off, before we jump into into it all? Because we like I say often that a lot of the people who come on are friends, and they are. I wouldn't say they're friends if they're not. But you and I are dear friends. We're, we're a bit closer. We've spent more time together uh, yeah. away from soccer. I remember us, you know, your New York going away party when you were moving out of New York to come to South yeah. Florida, and I was still living there. And we went out for some PG-13 debauchery that night. Yeah, I still yeah. have the, the Instagram, or I don't know if it, maybe it wasn't Instagram. It was Snapchat in those days. The Snapchat video of us at the diner after we went out, and there's people falling asleep. and we're, we, we, were having, right. we were having a great time. We were having a great yeah. time. That's right. That's right. That's when you know you've had a good night when one of you or one of us is falling asleep while we're eating in a diner. 
<laughs> it wasn't me. I am ten- I tend to be sleepy, but it wasn't me. And there was a no, few other ones. There were a few others. I remember exactly who it was. It was a good friend of mine. Yes, yes. Well, how's the family? Good? Family's good. My yeah. daughter still asks um, to go back to Miami almost every single day because, you know, she lived the the, the beach and pool life. Of course. Um, there is some pool life here. You know, it's nice and warm in Charlotte. But, you know, still going through an ad- adaptation period, which is which is normal. We went through it when we moved from New York to to Miami. Uh, but life life is good here. In, in, enjoying the, the, the role, the gig, It's it's been a lot of fun. It's good to hear, brother. It's good to hear. You're growing family. You're growing family. It's, it's incredible because when we met, you didn't have any family. Now you've got a whole family, two kids, uh, a cat. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible. But Eric, let's talk about the game this coming weekend. And Miami goes on to take, take on Charlotte FC. What can Inter-Miami fans, who maybe have not seen a whole lot of Charlotte FC, expect from the expansion side? Well, that's a very good question. Um, The fact that Charlotte FC are playing at home is a huge boon uh, for them because, you know, as you know, because while you're uh, you're a beat guy for Inter-Miami, very few people know this league better than you, and you know that Charlotte has had a Jekyll and Hyde kind of season. Um, you know, at home it's been it's been desperate. I mean, excuse me, away on the road it's been it's been desperate times. The football just simply hasn't been there. They're far more aggressive at Bank of America Stadium. They play with a conviction and a confidence that we only saw in Colorado, where they got their only point so far in this expansion season away from familiar confines. And now that you know, Inter Miami is dealing with some some absentees, uh, some red cards, and I don't know what the what the deal is with Leo Campana uh, and whether he will be back. I think that they will have the bit in between their teeth and really feel that the three points are a must. And to be completely honest, you know, there's a three-game road stand now. It's Inter-Miami followed by Montreal, who are doing exceedingly well, and Vancouver, who are very, very poor in the West. Uh, I believe that anything short of six points from this homestand would be a, a, a disappointment. Now, you touched on Charlotte's form, obviously, and they come into this game with a three-win, one-draw, and six-loss record. Inter-Miami right now stands at 3-1-5. and five. Charlotte has scored nine goals, same as Inter-Miami, but only given up 13 compared to Inter-Miami's 18. So, like you said, Dr. Uh, Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, seems like Charlotte's been up and down, which is a bit expected in an expansion season and Miami fans will know that will know that well but when Charlotte does play well who are the players to keep an eye on who should Inter Miami fans be looking to watch especially if they're headed to the stadium on on Saturday when a few quite a few Inter Miami fans are and if you're Inter Miami game planning who should Inter Miami game plan for well, first of all, Karol Świderski, right? He's the, one of the designated players on the team, a guy who hasn't scored this month, but in nine appearances has four goals. Um, he's, a, he's a pretty special player. You know, I, I knew very little about Świderski when, when uh, I arrived here uh, in Charlotte. I saw him play in the Euro uh, alongside Lewandowski for, for, for Poland. But, you know, when... You, because I wasn't that focused on those games, I was watching them, but my mind was elsewhere. I didn't really see everything he had to offer. And then when I looked at his video, I was very excited 
uh, about this signing because he's just a complete forward, a guy who protects the ball very well, connects the dots uh, excellently, and is a, a gifted goal scorer, can improvise in the box, can shoot from outside. I would even venture to say, and this is something that will probably make you cringe a little bit, but he has <laughs> the potential, the potential to be a top 10 player in this league. The problem is that while we saw that potential against New England in that historic first win at Bank of America Stadium where he scored a, 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 a brace in that game in the 3-1 win, and then a brace against Cincinnati after that in another win, we haven't seen it since. In fact, we've seen a, a player who is, who is frustrated with how things have gone uh, on the road because he hasn't gotten much service. So the hope, I think, for Charlotte FC fans is that now that he will be playing at home where the team has been playing better, um, that he will get the service and will get back to his, his scoring ways. And Inter-Miami fans and any, anybody else who's watching this game will see just how good he is. Uh, in defense, the, the guy who's been heralded as one of the best players so far, and, and correctly so, is Christian Fuchs, who's been playing as a left back and, and as a center back. He has just been consistent. Uh, he has shown all his leadership qualities, and a guy who you can see from the outside expects a lot more from his teammates when they are not clicking on all cylinders. So none of those midfielders that you talked to me about in preseason. When Eric and I were talking in preseason about the state of Charlotte and his move, I asked him about the team. And Eric, I will I will share this story with the audience. Eric was convinced that Charlotte FC would be a playoff team. He was like, "There, no, it's going to be a playoff team. And I was like, I didn't think so. I still don't think so. And he was raving about the midfielders then. He did not name them now. So I think his opinion may have changed a little bit. Do you want to share your Fuchs story, by the way? Your t-shirt that you wore to your to your child's daycare, I think it was, or the school maybe? <laughs> yeah. I wore a Christian Fuchs a t-shirt that says, I Fuchs with CLT. Uh, you know, interpret that as you will. And a lot <laughs> of the mothers of other children looked at me sort of sideways, sideways and... Uh, uh, and, and not positively. Uh, but let me just touch on what you just said there because you bring up a good point. And I did say uh, when the team was being put together that if you look at the, the at this midfield in terms of talent, uh, and again, I'm going to use the word potential, uh, I thought that they were one of the best teams in Major League Soccer. Um, and I, I, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to juxtapose their midfield with Philadelphia's. And the reason I'm going to say that I'm saying that or going to talk about that is because Philadelphia were dominant in the game that, where they beat Charlotte FC in Philadelphia. But they were playing with Quinn Sullivan, who's an 18-year-old. Uh, they have the kid uh, Flock, uh, who came from you know a uh, second division team in, in Germany, St. Pauli. And yet they were able to control the midfield when Charlotte FC had more talented players. Why am I bringing that up? Because we can talk about potential all day long, but if you're not doing what you're supposed to do in midfield, you're, not, you're just simply not going to win. And now there are, there are a variety of reasons for that. I won't go into all of them. But I still think, and with the additions that have been made to, to, to Charlotte FC in its totality, I still think they have the ability to be a playoff contender. And I will actually say to you, Franco, and you can use this against me later, I do believe that they will make the playoffs. You know, nice. they will... They will 
They will probably back in in the end, and that's because they have got a lot of talent on this team. But if we're going to talk about midfield, and I should have mentioned this, one of the guys that was not on my radar and who, for me, has been one of the best midfielders in the league this season is Brent Bronico, uh, who has been simply superb. He, he's just been so good. Uh, even when the team hasn't played well, his performances have been the kind that you can say, you know what, that's the silver lining in this loss. Uh, so hopefully he, he maintains his level and everybody else who has the ability to do better will do as well as they're supposed to do. Eric Krakauer now bleeds blue, white, and black. A hundred percent. I would not be surprised if he's wearing a Charlotte FC hat right now because I do not see that team making the playoffs. I don't. I don't. Maybe maybe I'm wrong and at the end of the year we can, we can revisit it and uh, maybe we can put a wager on it publicly. So uh, within within reason, of course. But uh, I just don't see this. I'll buy you dinner. You buy me dinner. Let's do it that way. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. We can do that. We can do that. But there it is. The bet has been laid here on Miami Total Football Radio. Now, Eric, switching gears to the collective a little bit more. What kind of game should we expect from Charlotte? You touched on their style at home as opposed to away. Inter-Miami, up to this point, has been a team that doesn't really like having the ball. They're a team that's strengths lie in counterattacking, finding in the spaces that are left in behind with the speed that they have. Ariel Lasseter, Robbie Robinson, DeAndre Yedlin. They're not really a team that breaks you down from the run of play with some intricate passing or uh, a number 10 that unlocks you with a, with a pass in the final third. It's a team that likes to counterattack, try to stay compact defensively at the back. There are questions as to the availability of some players. Like you mentioned, Leonardo Campana, we don't know his status yet. He did not train on Tuesday. The hope is that he might train on Thursday from Inter-Miami staff. So we'll see what his availability is. Amey Mabika, the center back who's come in as of late and, and helped him in a big way. He's also a question mark, didn't train on Tuesday either. So Inter-Miami, I imagine, regardless of the personnel, but especially if some of these players are missing, they're going to look to stay compact and, and very tight at the back. Just like we've seen in other games, it's worked well in some, not so well in others. And they'll look to hit Charlotte FC on the break. I don't think that they're going to try to go toe-for-toe in terms of battling for possession. Charlotte will have the ball, I'm expecting. Now, what will Charlotte do with that ball? How do you think they'll approach the game this weekend? The same way they've approached every game in terms of game plan, right? They're a team that builds out of the back, that is consistent, you know, um, you know well that I've covered Miguel Angel Ramirez, their coach, for a number of years. I called the final of the Sudamericana when his Independiente del Valle beat Colón uh, by three to uh, three goals to one. And the football that was evidenced there is the one that he's been trying to uh, apply here. And sometimes it's worked and sometimes it hasn't. And part of that has had to do with player familiarity. You can still see that there are some struggles in in learning the, the blueprint that he's trying to impose, and also due to some of the opponents who have figured out how to capitalize on the system. Look no further than Orlando City, who uh, used their fullbacks to good effect with Moutinho on the left and Juan on the right, who just you know ran amok, uh, yeah. scored and, 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 and assisted. And you that, that goal, about... Sorry to interrupt you. That goal reminded yeah. me a lot, and I said this on a... I was invited on a couple of Charlotte... Uh, podcast earlier this week that goal reminded me a lot of the 
Inter Miami one that was given up against the Philadelphia Union at the MLS's back tournament in Orlando. It's not exactly the same, but in terms of like the the poor shape defensively and then just the quick counterattack off of, a, of an attacking corner that leads to a goal. It reminded me a lot of that. Just, and I think that that comes down to just being an expansion team, not not a not a well-drilled, fully well-drilled team just yet. Uh, I, I mean, that's just my opinion. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, but that was a, that was a head-scratching mistake. Uh, you, If you look at the replay, and I remember calling that goal and just wondering the whole time how it happened, if you actually look at a, a bird's eye view of the field, there are so many Charlotte players who are not in the right uh, in the right position. Nobody's protecting outside of uh, of the eighteen, and it was essentially a gimme. And then you allow the fastest player in the league to just run uncontested. Uh, it, it was disastrous, and, and I think that in some ways, yes, that is a reflection of a, of of a team still learning on the job. But it's also an enormous mistake, and if they continue sure. to do that, they will not make it uh, to the to the playoffs. All this to say that there are ways to get at this Charlotte FC team, and I think a counterattacking team that is quite sharp, which Inter Miami can be, like they were against New England at times when they beat them at Drive Pink Stadium, they could take advantage of the spaces left behind by by Charlotte FC with, without a doubt. But I would expect in this game an aggressive uh, approach from, from Ramirez, lots of possession, which is what they like. They like to control yeah. the tempo. Where they have faltered for me this season is that when they get to the attacking third, they're not quick enough, they're not sharp enough, they're not decisive enough. And that is one of the reasons why you've seen a, a frustrated Karol Shriderski because he's been in situations to, to score and he hasn't gotten the service the most glaring against Colorado in stoppage time when McKinsey Gaines didn't cross the ball to a wide-open Shriderski in an empty net. Yeah, and it was Casper Shabilko in that game, in Miami versus the Philadelphia Union, on July 14th of 2020 in the 63rd minute where they scored that goal off a counterattack um, in which Inter Miami left itself exposed, poorly shaped, poorly uh, organized there to defend an attacking corner, right? You don't normally defend an attacking corner, but you have to be positioned just in case something like that does happen. I think I, I would chalk that up to, to expansion uh, growing pains. But Eric, before we let you go, because I hear your phone going off, you're a TV star now, you're just getting messages uh, left and right. No, it's all good. It's all good. I know, I know you're a busy man and we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, to talk with us here on Miami Total Football Radio. Before we let you go, I'm going to ask you a question about Inter-Miami. You, again, helped me start this podcast two years ago in some change when I moved back to South Florida. You saw the team a little bit more up close and personal in the market. Now you're a bit further away, a bit further removed, but what's your overall opinion, your overall analysis on... Inter-Miami start to life in Major League Soccer? Well, let me say this real quick. You know, I called the game in Charleston between Charlotte and Inter-Miami. And I remember having a conversation with you before that game, after they played the crew in the opener, if I'm not mistaken. And I remember saying, oh man, they're in deep trouble this season after that game. It was just a disastrous performance, you know, uh, uh, Iguain was up to his to his normal, uh, you know, uh, hysterics on the field, looking at the pitch and blaming every divot for his bad touches. Uh, and then after that game against Charlotte, 
a game where Charlotte didn't do particularly well. I saw things about Inter-Miami, and I remember getting on the phone with you and saying, if they can defend well this season, a few moments of inspiration can get them points. And I also remember telling you when Leo Campana signed that they were signing a very, very good player. Because I know Leo Campana from his time in South America. I know Leo Campana from his time in Portugal. Uh, he's a forward that I think is, is, while he is in many ways a prototypical nine, he offers qualities that other nines don't have. Uh, you saw that with one of the goals that he just scored, I forget who it was against, where he turns on a dime and strikes it from the left side of, of the yeah. box. LA he's got soft... Atlanta United, that's right. Uh, that, was a, that was a fun game to, to watch. So it was a disaster in the making in the beginning, bringing all the players that they did. We, you and I talked uh, extensively about how Matuidi just didn't fit the system, you know, and there were other players uh, like him. But given the, the, the limitations that they had this season, I think that they have done well and that at least they have a skeleton to progress. Now, I don't think they're going to make the playoffs – but I would not be surprised, and this might be a surprise to your listeners, if they're not knocking at the door somewhat at, by the end of the season to try and get into that uh, seventh spot. And that's for two reasons. You have ability in Leo Campana. Iguain can still pull something out of his rear end. And if they tighten the, the defense, so the playing side. And the other part is the East just isn't that strong. Right. You look at Charlotte yeah. right now, you mentioned their record. They've got 10 points and what, they're one away from the playoff line? So I think that every team in the East, except maybe DC United, um, will have a chance to, to get into the playoffs. And if Inter-Miami gets a few things right, they could be one of those teams. Um, but they need to win games at home, just like Charlotte. So if Charlotte want to have a chance if they have aspirations of being a playoff team, they have to beat Inter-Miami on Saturday. And they have to beat them convincingly. See, so I'm of the belief that to give yourself the best chance to win, it's just my philosophy, to give yourself the best chance to win, you have to play well. It doesn't guarantee you're going to win, but it gives you the best chance of winning. And, you know, Inter-Miami, with its defensive approach, I don't think that they're going to be in a position to, to make the playoffs at the end of well, the year. They might, they might last. They might last throughout the course season. MLS is built on parity. But, look, in, and it's not like there's no teams around the world that defense, ever defensively sound and counterattack and win that way. But I just don't see Inter-Miami being, at least up till now, that tight defensively. Yes, they have. Okay, that's, they've, that's the they've, issue, had, right? they've had some success in games and in moments. But even in some of the games that they've won, defensively, they've given up some pretty good looks. That Atlanta game, they gave up good looks. Atlanta just didn't put them put them away. And, you know, yes. Inter-Miami got the three th- points. But going forward, is that, a, is that a recipe? Is that a formula that you can continue to repeat and, and get success out of? I don't think so. I think that there needs to be improvement with the ball, uh, as well as tightening things up defensively. Also, uh, you know, this team is, is also hamstrung by the, the sanctions. So, you know, if they lose yeah. one starter... To, does you know the player that's coming off the bench is that is that is he going to be able to maintain that level of defensive solidity and you know and I think like you said for Inter Miami making the playoffs is is the goal it's it's what they yes. what they aspire to be I think one of the recent broadcasts one of the commentators that did a, a you know pregame prep with Phil Neville Phil Neville very candidly although he hasn't said this to us but this was said on the broadcast that Phil Neville had stated making the playoffs would be like winning MLS Cup essentially for Inter Miami because they're up against it. Their their backs are against the walls in terms of the roster they have, in terms of the money that they've had to 
to to build this roster with. So we'll see how they well, do. Can I jump, yeah, in, can I just jump in and add a few things? Go for it. You say you say teams have to play well, but I've watched a lot of the Philadelphia Union this season. They're top of the standings in the East. They don't play particularly well, but they defend soundly. Right, right. Elliot and, and and then they Rathnick. have and they have Blake back there who's who's a monster. By and the way, Blake, that save that save that he made that save that he made on Alex Mule this past weekend. My goodness, if you have not Un- seen that save, save of the season, save of the season. If you have not seen that save, YouTube the highlights from the Philadelphia Union's game against Nashville FC. Nashville FC opened their soccer specific stadium, which is a gem. But watch out for that Andre Blake save, spectacular save, unbelievable, yeah. man, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and look, I know I know you're crunched for time, but. There's Philadelphia. You mentioned Nashville in that game, who were all over, all over the Union, and Blake was outstanding in that game. But even Nashville built on solid defense. I know they have set piece issues, right? And then they have Honey Mukhtar, who can pull a rabbit out of a hat. Um, but so I, I, what I'm saying is that that the the possibility is there for for Inter Miami. I, I really I really believe that, and I and I still believe that. Uh, today, I, even after that, you know, after uh, uh, another loss, but you saw some of the things in those wins that could propel them to a playoff spot. Also, you mentioned other teams having chances in those games that they they, they won against Atlanta United and New England. The XG, and I know you're not a big statistician, <laughs> but, but the XG was in favor of the teams that lost. And sometimes you have to be lucky, and sometimes goalkeepers have to make. Uh, big saves as well. So I think there is uh, something to be optimistic about Inter-Miami. And let me finish off by talking about Charlotte real quick. I think there's a lot to be optimistic about Charlotte FC. You know, you brought in another DP. They brought in another TP uh, in uh, Yuzviak, who's a very good player. They now got Kerwin Vargas out of uh, Fidens in, in Portugal, who is a talented, talented player. And Chinashiki uh, I, I, who who was who gave that Charlotte defense a torrid time in Colorado is yet another welcome addition. So all all the ingredients are there for Charlotte to make the playoffs. All the ingredients are there for them to whoop Inter Miami on Saturday. All the ingredients will be there at the end of the season on my dinner plate when you take me out <laughs> to eat because there's no chance that Charlotte's making the playoffs, in my opinion. But we'll revisit that at the end of the year. Eric, thank you so very much for hopping on and taking some time to preview this weekend's game as comprehensive and thorough as I imagined you would be, and I hope the listeners enjoyed that. Before we let you go, by the way, remember when we used to talk about Gonzalo Higuain and his pressing when he first signed and how Diego Alonso was going to manage that? That, that ended up being a two-plus-year issue now that Inter Miami is dealing with because they, they haven't been yeah. able to, to figure that out. But anyway, uh, before we let you go, before we let you go, I ask every guest to say in Spanish, Miami Total Football Radio, before we let them go. Some people <laughs> have done very, very well. Some people have not. Let's see where you fall on the depth chart. Uh, okay. You're Portuguese. You should be, you should be, you should be fine. Listen, I just interviewed on live TV on Saturday, one of our players in Spanish, Jordi Alcivar. So I can do this. Okay. Uh, So, ustedes están escuchando Miami Total Radio. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) You, you. You 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 missed a you missed a, a word there trying to sound so impressive in Spanish Miami Total Football Radio 
Yeah, Miami Total Football Radio con Franco Panizo. All right, well, you know, you took two attempts there, so I don't know if you get a passing grade, but, you know, you, you uh, A for effort, A for effort. Thank that, you, thank you very much. That is Eric Krakauer, ladies and gentlemen. Again, Eric, thank you so much. We hope to see you back in South Florida somewhat soon. We can play pickup again, and then you can make me, and then I'll just score on you. So just like the good old days. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to head to the Q&A session, but we'll do that after this. Okay, guys, we're in the final segment, which is normally just for the Q&A and final thoughts, but I want to go back and revisit segment one. Michelle was obviously pressed on time, so had to cut it shorter than I would have liked, but I do think there's a couple of analysis points to still talk about from that 2-0 loss to the New England Revolution. And one is that I do think that the mistake that Nick Marsden makes to Gene Mota is a product of Inter-Miami looking to get better with the ball, to play better soccer, to play better football. Because Inter-Miami, again, in my opinion, has not been playing all that great with the ball. They've defended okay in certain stretches and in certain games, but with the ball, they've by and large struggled even when they were winning during that recent stretch. And Phil Neville said it. Phil Neville said the soccer will come and I imagine, and I have asked a couple of players this this week and before, if they're trying to incorporate new elements in terms of improving the soccer side, of, of playing with the ball. And they've said yes, they have been. So I think in that moment, rather than Nick Marsman hoofing the ball forward and raffling it for a 50-50 and the hope that you can win a second ball, whether it's Campana or somebody else, I think they were looking to build out of the back. And obviously, when you have Gene Mota as the six, this was the second game in a row that he's played in that position, I think it's with the intention that he gives you, as we say in Spanish, una mejora salida, a better build-out, a cleaner build-out. Because Inter-Miami, the two center backs, Damon Lowe and Amey Mabika, have defended, for the most part, over the recent winning streak. They've defended pretty well, by and large. You can nitpick here and there, but by and large, they've defended pretty well. But they're not the best at starting an attacking sequence and picking out a pass, either between lines or, or just building out. They don't have the cleanest foot. Gene Mota, more technical player, does. So I think what Inter Miami is looking to do with Gene Mota as the six, as the defensive midfielder, is not use him there for his defensive prowess. Obviously, Gregory's a tougher defender, a more enforcer. I think they're looking for Gene Mota to help with the build-up, to give them that that link between the back line and the attack. Someone that can help distribute and move the ball forward on the ground with short passes, maybe at times with longer-range passes, but someone that gives you a variation where you're not just playing for 50-50s. I understand the thought process behind it. I don't agree with putting Gene Mota there because in this game against the New England Revolution, you had Gene Mota as a six. And you had Gregory playing as an eight ahead of him, and that doesn't play to Gregory's strengths because, again, Gregory's more of a pit bull terrier, 
enforcer type in the middle of the field, a more pure destruct, uh, more pure destroyer, excuse me. Whereas Gene Mota can be a bit more mixed, a bit more box to box in that way. So again, I understand the the potential thought process behind it. I think if you want to do something like that, and you want to improve the the soccer style. Play them side by side. You don't necessarily need the three midfielders. You can have Gene Mota be the, the player that builds out. And he can have Gregory next to him breaking things up. I don't think Gene Mota as a six is going to work over the long term. I think it's something Phil Noble's tried over the last two games. The first one by by force because Gregory was out. But I don't think this will be a long-term solution. I could be wrong. Maybe they improve on this. Maybe they avoid the mistakes like we saw. But I think that's what, I think that's what we saw from from Inter Miami on that initial goal in the 53rd second. The mistake comes from Inter Miami looking to build out, looking to play, and they obviously just didn't get the movements down pat. And Gene Mota is not right-footed, right? And and he tries to stretch out with his right foot because he's in a right-footed posture with his, you know, he's he's playing with his back to the goal that Inter Miami's trying to score on. He's playing with his back to goal. So when the pass comes a little bit too far away from him, he tries to reach out with his less preferred right foot and he doesn't get there. Maybe if it was the other way, when it was with his left foot, he might he might get there because he's a bit more comfortable, a bit more able with it. But anyway, that that's just to the to the goal. The second part I would like to touch on is, I think Phil Neville made a mistake when he put in Robert Taylor as the number nine in place of the injured Leonardo Campana. Now, fully acknowledge that Inter Miami was shorthanded and that they didn't have Gonzalo Higuain on the bench nor Robbie Robinson so Phil Neville and his staff had to come up with a solution on the fly I just don't think that that was the the right one and not just because at halftime they made the change I just didn't think Robert Taylor I don't think Robert Taylor has the characteristics to play the number nine and I just I just didn't see where it made sense I thought Ariel Lasseter was the more clear-cut choice even though he's not a traditional number nine and I think I think that obviously they realized that and they made the change at halftime. And you could see when Robert Taylor was in there, Inter Miami looked like a team that had never played with that type of for like that type of formation, but with that personnel in that formation with Robert Taylor up top because they looked lost. They looked lost. And obviously in training, teams work on the movements and the patterns of play with obviously certain players and the players behind them. But this was like an unprecedented type of situation for Inter Miami. They lose their number nine early on, and they don't have any of their other number nine options on the bench. So they went with the player. They were going to have to go with a player that they probably haven't gotten much reps with in that position. And I think that's what the team transmitted to me watching it from the outside. They transmitted a team that just looked lost and confused and and obviously also shell-shocked from the early goal. So overall, not a great game, as Michelle and I said in that first segment, but just two talking points that I wanted to touch on there. Again, I thought Ariel Lasseter should have played at the number nine position once Campana went down. As you saw early in the second half, Lasseter provided a slight upgrade over Taylor. It wasn't wow, but his characteristics more, more suit playing a number nine in a pinch than Robert Taylor does. I mean, that's just, again, my opinion. But anyway, let's move on. Let's go to the Q&A session. And I'm going to try to answer every single question that we got this week. I'm going to try my best. 
First one comes from Elder Bar. Regardless of being the top goal scorer in the club, is Gonzalo the worst thing that happened to Inter Miami? Robbie is an eternal promise. Do you agree? Why so many club injuries? Mars scares me a lot. Does he scare you too? Mars the planet? <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Terrible joke. Uh, look, there's a lot of questions in there. Is Gonzalo Iguain the worst thing that happened to Inter Miami? I would say no. I would say no. Right now, maybe that's what the emotions or the narrative might point to, but I don't think so. He won some games for Inter Miami last year. He helped produce some goals, both as a creator and a finisher, and he provided some joy to the fan base and to the organization. So is he one of the worst? I could hear that argument, but the worst? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I would probably point the finger or point the, the blame or say that the worst thing that happened to Inter Miami was hiring Paul McDonough over Chris Henderson in year one. If that doesn't happen, if Jorge Mas and David Beckham don't make that decision, we're looking at a very different Inter Miami in 2022 than we are right now. So, like I said before, Jorge Mas, as an owner, is someone that you absolutely, if you're an Inter Miami fan, I think should be happy about having, but he hasn't been faultless. They've made mistakes that one was very grave, choosing McDonough over Chris Henderson. Uh, as for the other questions, I'll go through them very quickly. Is Robbie an eternal promise? I think Robbie Robinson still has a lot to prove, a lot to show. Don't think that he's lived up to the billing. Still too inconsistent. Not enough of a difference maker. Questions are out there with regards to him. I don't think he's shown enough. And, you know, I take my personal preference aside from a soccer player standpoint. You know, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know that I'm not a, I'm not fully convinced by Robbie Robinson. But even that said, he hasn't shown a whole lot on the field. So anyway, Marsman, I think there are questions about him too in terms of his saves, although he's looked good in recent weeks in terms of his shot blocking ability. I still think there are some questions out out there. As for the injuries, injuries are part of the game. I think early on there were some eyebrows raised at the amount of injuries. I had questions as to why they were getting so many injuries early on, especially muscle injuries. Could be training, could be the heat. I mean, could be any number of those things. I think at this point it's just part of the wear and tear of, of a season. But maybe there are things to look at you know, for the staff from a, an internal standpoint. Maybe they are pushing these players too hard during the week. Maybe it's possible, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. Next question comes from Lucho Lalo. What's the situation with Charlotte and then playing against Tormenta? Do we go full team for both or do we rest up against Charlotte to beat Tormenta or vice versa? I want that U.S. Open Cup for CONCACAF Champions League reasons, to be honest. I think that they're going to go full strength or as full strength as possible, given the likely absences on Saturday against Charlotte. And then I think against Tormenta, we'll see, just like we did against Miami FC, a bit more of a mixed lineup. Now, that should still get the job done. Because I don't think, me personally, I don't think Tormenta's up to the level that Miami FC showed in that game. I don't think they can get there. But it is a one-off game. Anything can happen, as we as we said last week in the pod leading up to the to the public vote but also in a one-off game anything can happen one penalty kick call goes against you and then you don't put the ball into the back of the net and you know you could find yourself out but i imagine inter miami phil neville and his staff are are going to go with a more mixed lineup 
at the Open Cup game next Tuesday. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we talked to Phil Neville on Thursday, and we'll find out a little bit more as to what his plans are. But I imagine that's a safe bet. I imagine a safe bet. Yes, they say they're prioritizing the, the U.S. Open Cup, but obviously words are one thing and actions are another. You saw from the lineup against Miami FC that if they feel that they can get by with a mixed lineup, then they'll take the chance to do so. And against Tormenta, I think that will be the case. If it was an MLS team, maybe not. Maybe not. Next question comes from Wario64, our friend Bernie. It seems to me that New England exposed us tactically and our lack of possession became a huge problem. I know last week you guys said our system is best suited for the current personnel, but how can this improve? What type of player is best suited for this team with the open DP? So that's a good question. Well, there's two questions there, but that's a good question as to how, you know, how to improve. Because, because this roster... This roster is pretty limited in terms of technical players. Let's count them really quickly. We might miss one or two if we're going off the top of our heads, but let's just count them out loud. Gonzalo Higuain's pretty technical. Gene Mota's pretty technical. Leonardo Campana is fairly technical. I want to say he's the most technical player out there, but he's fairly technical. And then Nick Marsman's one. Bryce Duke, you could throw him in there, but... Again, the fact that it takes so much searching and rattling through the mind to come up with players is because this team's not doesn't have that profile. The, the roster is not built in that way. It's more of an athletic team, a younger team, a team that has a lot of energy, work rate, but not necessarily the most technical. Not necessarily the most technical and and. I think that how do you improve that? I mean, there's certain elements you can improve in training, try to get some movements down, some patterns in terms of the build-out and trying to knock things around and obviously try to do individual improvement as well with the players, but you can, you're can you only going to get so far with players that are not super technical. It's like asking a technical player who maybe is not the most athletic player to be much more athletic. There's only so much more he's going to be able to give you even if you train him really hard and, and train him really well, so... This is an athletic team. I didn't use that word before. But this is an athletic team. And I think from a possession standpoint, they can get better incorporating different different elements and working on different patterns. But I don't think they're going to ever be one of the most possession-based teams in this league with this current crop. I just don't, don't think so. As for which position they should go for with the DP this summer, a number 10, a more creative force is clearly missing on the roster but given that they don't play in that type of system right now maybe a goal scoring creative winger someone that's like a number 10 but that plays out wide next question from dos knows why is jose not drinking the campana juice the only guy i know that will rather start Iguain. i don't know i i don't want to speak for jose but i don't know if he's not in favor of starting campana I think he just says it from a standpoint of what he thinks will happen. Not what he prefers, but what he thinks will happen. And he thinks Higuain will come back into the lineup and into the team, which, hey, he hosted, to host his credit, last week he said, what happens when Campana goes down with an injury? Maybe he jinxed it, I don't know, but Campana went down with an injury a few days later, and now we're in the point of, at least for discussion's sake, saying 
well, now what? Now who starts for Inter Miami up top if Campana can't go? And that was, I think, Jose's point. So Gonzalo Higuain still has a role on this team. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if Campana's injured, if he gets called up, if he needs a break, needs a rest, the next man up is Gonzalo Higuain at that striker spot. Next question comes from Beef. Any news on if the city of Fort Lauderdale has any time restrictions on how long the main team has to be at Drive Pink, or can they just up and leave once stadium is ready at Melrose? So, in terms of the first team playing games, as soon as Melrose or excuse me, Miami Freedom Park at Melrose is done, they can go and play over there. They can play their matches over there. The stadium will still be there. Drive Pink Stadium will still be there in Fort Lauderdale. So will the training facility and Inter Miami's plans, as Michelle said earlier, and as has been said by Team Brass. They still plan to train at the training facility. At least that's what they've said publicly. They still plan to have practices there. They still plan to have the academy uh, practice sessions there. The second team there. Second team will play its home games at Drive Pink Stadium. I mean, as of right now, that's what's been said. There might be a women's team in the future. We'll see if that's an if that's an actual promise or an empty one. You know, Michelle talked about the the park that they're supposed to build in Miami as part of this. Miami Freedom Park project. Well, there was also supposed to be a park with Drive Pink Stadium, and we haven't seen that park be created. So we'll see. We'll see. But yes, Inter Miami can up and pack their bags and go down to Miami as soon as that stadium is done, which is expected in 2025. Although I think that's a bit hopeful. I think maybe 2026 is more likely, but we'll see. Maybe Jorge and Jose Mas can get things done very quickly and before people expect yet again. So next, it's not a question, it comes, it's just a comment. It comes from Don Cavecito. Friendly public service announcement. All Interistas should burn some sage for our next match so we can drive out the mal de ojo energy. Two red cards and Marsman error that led to a goal is not coincidental. Vamos, Miami. So, yeah, I mean, look, last time, last time you guys did the limpieza de huevo, it, it worked out. It worked out. So maybe maybe some sage is the way is the way to go. Last one. I believe this is the last question. Lucho Lalo, 1896 again. I think this was the first part of his two-parter and I missed it. But anyway, we'll finish with Lucho Lalo. He says, Franco, seeing how fast Drive Pink came up, can we see that speed for Miami Freedom Park? Are we looking to get reinforcements in the summer? If so, who? How do we get an inter-Miami CF license plate? Want everyone in Miami and South Florida to get them and have as many as all the heat license plates seen out there or out here. That's a good idea. Hey, you helped Will into existence, the Drive Pink, or at least I'm going to give you credit for helping Will to existence, the Pink Nets at Drive Pink Stadium. So why not? Why not an Inter-Miami license plate? Why not? I do think Inter-Miami starting to get some things right. I think they're starting to learn from their mistakes. They're early on learning lessons and uh and i think they're, they're making progress in terms of building a team on the field as well as building all that comes around a professional soccer organization this day and age so i do think that you you might see something like license plates at some point in the future i think you know they're starting to get a lot more of those aspects down pat which is normal in a sense because when you're an expansion team everything's new it takes some time to to build and unfold and unfurl all the plans so as for the stadium like i mentioned before they've said 2025 i think 2026 is maybe more realistic but 
I wouldn't rule it out of the realm of possibility that 2025 is is feasible. It's it's around the corner. It's not it's not it's not that far off. We're already almost halfway through 2022. So they would have to build it pretty pretty quickly. And I don't know if it would be built as fast as Drive Pink because Drive Pink as nice as it is, it is also just some bleachers. It's not as intricate or it doesn't require it didn't require as much as Miami Freedom Park is expected to in terms of the stadium. The stadium's going to be even more state of the art uh, and a lot there will be a lot more bells and whistles to that, so that will require more time. However, again, don't rule it out completely that they could be ready by 2025. 20, but that does it for the Q&A session. I will give my final thought and we will wrap up the show. After that, my final thought is we are doing a giveaway. We are doing a giveaway. If you are listening to this, free giveaway on Miami Total Football's Instagram page. That's at MIA Total Football. And it is a uh, an authentic jersey from the first season. La Rosa Negra, the first black and pink jersey that Inter-Miami donned. We're giving that away for free in any size. Whatever size the winner is or whatever size the winner wants will be the size that the winner is. Gets. All you have to do is follow the instructions on Miami Total Football's Instagram page. It's three easy steps. Follow the account. Tag four friends. Oh, and you have to like the post, obviously. So easy enough. Easy enough. But if you are if you want a free jersey or you want to be in the running for a free jersey, make sure you head on over to at MIA Total Football and follow the giveaway rules. But that does it for this week's show. We will try to be back before the Open Cup game. Working on it. We will try to be back before the Open Cup game with another preview episode for that match. Hopefully, if not, we will definitely be back afterwards to recap that game and preview Inter-Miami's next match. So, I am Franco Panizo. You have been listening to Miami Total Football.